Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santos here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. And because we're going to get serious tonight, not too serious, but talk about serious things, we've brought back our very favorite pharmacist, Swellinor. <laughs> oh, yes. Hello, everyone. Uh, we should properly introduce her as Eleanor Oranger's PharmD. For those of us who haven't been listening, <laughs> yeah, thinking about naming their next child Swellinor because that name is awesome. I endorse it. Yeah. <laughs> so let me start by saying I have now received my vaccine and so far no mutant powers, but I hold out hope. Santosh, Eleanor, have either of you been able to get vaccinated yet? Uh, we just had our rollout, but since I'm a pediatrician and my contact with COVID positive patients is rather slow, I was able to help coordinate the vaccine effort at our hospital, but I'm not receiving one until probably like this, the next round. Yeah. And I, because I'm not in active clinical practice, I, uh, probably will not be receiving it until phase one C. So I figured we could take this opportunity to kind of talk about a lot of the questions and concerns that people have about the vaccine. And now serving as the guinea pig, I can defer to your expertise while throwing out not ridiculous questions, but ones that a lot of people have been asking both in person and on our various social media feeds. So tonight's episode is going to be dedicated to talking about everything we currently know about the vaccines available for COVID, or as I like to call it, 
da 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 Gotta keep them vaccinated. <laughs> Is that going to show up at the beginning of the show? <laughs> Out of beginning, context? the middle, the end, everywhere. <laughs> if the offspring somehow get back together and come to us for royalties and we have nothing to pay them with, I'm blaming you. In fact, I'm going to dedicate myself to trying to come up with at least a bit of a parody before we finish recording this episode. Yeah. <laughs> and that is your COVID superpower. <laughs> there you go. Oh, he had so, that superpower long before COVID. <laughs> so one of the first things and one of the biggest, I guess, concerns or or hesitancy in a lot of people being willing to take this vaccine is how fast it apparently was developed. You know, we only got, I think around after isolating the virus from patients, Chinese scientists posted its genetic sequence on January 10th. Mm -hmm. And the very first U.S. trial of a vaccine began only 66 days later. Prior to that, the fastest a vaccine had ever been developed was mumps in four years, and Radiolab just did a great episode on that. Oh. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, and that's in the modern era. You know, this isn't the, uh, the ancient vaccines, you know, that we think about and that kind of a thing. But this is mid-20th century. This is after World War II, um, and it's it's people who we still celebrate today in the 1960s like Maurice Hilleman. It's awesome to see even in that very short amount of time, like, you know, 60 years where we've come so in vaccine development. Being, it shouldn't take 10 years or four years to develop a vaccine. We've all just kind of gotten used to that being the way. But that said, messenger RNA vaccines or mRNA vaccines were not created in two days or 66 days. They've actually been around for about 15 to 20 years. So I'm going to do a really, really quick background, and then we'll jump in to some of the vaccine differences. And hopefully we'll be able to answer a lot of listener questions. And if we don't, go ahead and message us. That's why we have social media accounts <laughs> that I, we rarely check, but what <laughs> they exist. But still, you can do yeah. I'm really excited about this because I think this is the standpoint that Eleanor and I come from as understanding biochemistry and uh, from research standpoints. And it's really cool to see the fruition of Nobel Prize award-winning work coming around. And it's, it's comforting to know that this isn't something that was hacked together at the last minute. This is the culmination of decades of work. So one of the first people whose name needs to be acknowledged and put out there is that of the first person who made one of the key discoveries. So before mRNA was multi-billion stock breaking, you know, vaccine idea, it was a scientific backwater and dead end, specifically for Hungarian-born scientist Katalin Kariko. She's devoted a large proportion of her career to trying to make mRNA work. The problem she knew is that synthetic RNA, meaning RNA where we alter it so it's 
uh, stays in the body longer, is notoriously vulnerable to the body's natural defenses, meaning that your immune system would kick in and destroy it long before it reached its target cells. And even worse, the resulting immune cascade that destruction of the synthetic RNA would cause could make any therapy a health risk for some patients. So she had been working on this as far back as the 90s, and the very first even hint of success in the concept was done at the University of Wisconsin by successfully treating one mouse with gene therapy. Yeah, yeah. That was her breakthrough, was, you know, sending in naked mRNA and oh man, it was it was so beautiful to kind of see this, uh, you know, read about this in the past histories and stuff, and the the dedication that she had. Just like I can do it, I I just need to prove a single like proof of concept right here and make this work. The stumbling block as her many grants rejections, IRB applications, all these different ways. She kept saying, I can make this work. And everyone took a look at her paper and just said, no, we don't want to fund you. We don't even think it's worth trying. And eventually what all these rejections pointed out is that Injecting any synthetic mRNA led to that immune response. The body sensed a chemical intruder and went to war. The solution, however, was the biological equivalent, I love this, of swapping out a tire. Every strand of messenger RNA is made up of four molecular building blocks, little uh, human Legos that we call nucleosides. But when you make an altered synthetic form of one of those building blocks, just like a misaligned wheel on a car, it would throw everything off, make a bunch of loud noises, and signal the immune system. So Cataline Carico and her research partner Weissman subbed it out for a slightly tweaked, less rattly version, creating a hybrid messenger RNA that could sneak its way into cells without alerting the body's defenses. And they published this paper and its success in 2005, 15 years before we have, you know, mass attempts at mRNA vaccines. Yeah, and there were you know, things that were built on top of this because, you know, mRNA is inherently unstable. Um, If it gets outside of a cell, like it immediately starts to break down. There are nonspecific RNases all over, you know, surfaces. So like out in the environment. And if if you, you know, mRNA gets like on our bench top, like we don't even care about it. We wipe it down with water because it breaks down so fast. So this is not a super stable, strong molecule like DNA. This is a fragile little molecule that shattered really, really quickly. And Josh, it's not actually just our own, you know, human cells that like to destroy mRNA because the first thing you see when you say naked mRNA is, oh, that's a virus, kill it. But since mRNA is also part, or I should say RNA is part of viruses that attack like bacteria and fungi. Those immune systems of bacteria, like CRISPR, for instance, uh, that is the innate immune system of a bacterium, actually do go to work on RNA as well. So you can't just leave it naked. So developing also delivery systems of liposomes and all these kind of things later on uh, are also part of this cascade of technology that you could shield the mRNA until it was ready to actually get into a cell. 
Um, yeah. And then later on, you know, please keep going and, and we'll talk a little bit about the, like the immune response and what happens when the body sees this little liposome full of RNA. So most of our vaccines prior, most of our vaccines through history have been generally inactivated or live attenuated, meaning a much weaker version. So in a live attenuated vaccine where you take a essentially handicapped version of the virus minus the dangerous parts, like the measles, mumps, and rubella shot, weakened viruses infect and incorporate their genetic instructions into the host cell. And then the body churns out basically fake news viruses that elicit antibody and T cell responses. It builds up a lot of outrage for what's essentially nothing. In newer gene-based designs, these are the viral vector DNA and mRNA vaccines, scientists will synthesize a little envelope and insert genetic instructions from the pathogen of interest to induce an immune response. So a viral vector transports genetic information in a less harmful virus, usually uh, an adenovirus like that that causes the common cold um, filled with a different kind of creamy filling engineered so it can't replicate in the host. So a viral vector takes a completely different virus from what normally infects us, and we package instructions for the virus we want to target inside it. A live attenuated vaccine takes the existing virus that we want to treat, but handicaps it so it can't cause a raging infection and uses that to trigger the body's uh, immune response. DNA and mRNA vaccines both deliver naked nucleic acids, or as you mentioned, Santosh, recently encapsulate them in some kind of carrier nanoparticle. I do want to emphasize nanoparticle just refers to nano meaning small, small. not <laughs> nano meaning robotic. <laughs> no, no, don't come after me for my hatred of robots on this one. This is an important this this is an important thing because and I bring this up because how many people have you heard become concerns that the vaccines are being used to insert tracking chips or whatever oh, into our bodies. You know, so Bill, Bill Gates is, is doing that. He's right. already doing all of it. And no. this is not this is not to make fun of anybody who has had that thought because very often when we hear nano, we associate it with nanotechnology and again robotics, chips, things like that. And I think that's where some of these worries came from. So I do want to point out nano simply means it's a definition of size, meaning very, very, very small. So nanoparticles have nothing to do with technology in a mechanical sense. Not And not to be confused by Nanu Nanu from Mork and Mindy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love, I know for a fact we have listeners who would get that reference. Um, rest in power, Robin Williams. But that's, that's awesome. <laughs> Yes, so, this is a nanoparticle, not a nano-nanoparticle. <laughs> <laughs> so within each of these different vaccine platforms, you use the same production and purification and manufacturing facilities can be used to make vaccines for different diseases. So all of these techniques were already waiting when COVID hit. So again, I just want to emphasize, even though it appears that the vaccine you know, happened overnight, there was a lot of foundational work that went into it. And we had all these tools ready to just kind of put in our utility belts. Now, adding on to that, 
in 2002, you may recall, there were diseases like the first SARS or the Middle East respiratory virus, which emerged a decade later around 2010. So because of those infections, scientists already knew to focus their initial attention on the spike protein of the new coronavirus. So we already knew what we had to aim for. They already knew which genetic modifications would stabilize the spike in the pre-fusion configuration, and those that would make messenger RNA less inflammatory and therefore safer. So essentially, we had all these different pieces lined up, and all we needed was the manual to assemble them and start making a messenger RNA to purify it and rid it of contaminants and protect it from degrading too quickly in the body. That was the major breakthrough that led to kind of this speed. We had all these tools, but we had to figure out how to prevent messenger RNA, our tweaked version, or even the natural ones, from degrading too quickly. And it was done by encasing it in a very small nano lipid made of fat carrier. It's an envelope molecule. One of the things to also mention, for those who may not be familiar with Catalin Karenko, in terms of the stars aligning, she is now, had left academia, she is a senior vice president at BioNTech, yeah. who is partnered with Pfizer to develop their version of the coronavirus vaccine. So talk about stars aligning as well. Which by Who's the way, laughing now, Grant <laughs> Review Board? <laughs> exactly. No, no, this was... There was almost clearly, there was a lack of imagination on the part of other scientists around her, number one. Uh, and there was definitely a lot of sexism happening in, you know, 1990s. Oh, because it's all gone right now, right? Yeah, now. thank goodness <laughs> we fixed that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 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 species saved no no it's it there is there's always uh when when it comes around rosalind franklin suffered from this and you know karenko ironically def- having to do with dna dna yeah all these women talking about genetic material why can't be- <laughs> ultimately santosh men just don't want women slipping into their genes <laughs> Eleanor, that's a really, really interesting observation. It's all women working in genetics who got stonewalled. Yeah, interesting, right? Even all the way up to like, do 2019 uh, Nobel Prize, you know, she got stonewalled. Mm-hmm. Or 2020, sorry, Nobel Prize. That's that's a weird set of coincidences. That's well, so- she certainly deserves a nod. If If this vaccine takes, she would certainly deserve a nod as part of the crucial founders of this technology. Um, Now, logistically, the vaccines are a little, are going to be challenging to distribute. And there's a few reasons we've already talked about. One, it's a two-step shot. So even if there's 500 million doses available, that can only cover 250 million people. The ultra-cold storage requirement of the Pfizer vaccine, which to the best of my knowledge is not necessarily the only part of stabilizing its mRNA configuration, but a component of it, is not the only challenging aspect. Most of the vaccines going out right now to healthcare workers and nursing home residents are the Pfizer vaccine. But by the time most of our listeners are able 
to be vaccinated, I suspect many of those will be the Moderna. And here's why. Well, we should, just before you say Moderna, we should clarify for those of you guys who don't know, it's the Pfizer slash BioNTech vaccine. Yeah. So that's that's why we're so excited about Karinko and stuff. So it's it's distributed and licensed out here, and like the technology was helped out, but it's really BioNTech. Yeah. So when we're talking Pfizer and BioNTech combined forces, mm-hmm. Moderna did theirs, and AstraZeneca, Oxford or Chadox uh, combined <laughs> yeah, theirs. The chimpanzee so, virus. That's the chimpanzee adenovirus. That that was completely different. No, and, we're, no and we'll talk about and we'll talk about that in a little bit. So here's just some of the logistical things to consider as you get uh, itchy shoulder fingers waiting to get vaccinated. <laughs> the the Pfizer vaccine, in addition to the ultra cold storage requirement, which we mentioned, is simply not available in a lot of these rural areas. They don't have those fridges. The minimum amount of vaccine a location can order of Pfizer is 975 doses, which is great if you're a large teaching hospital. But there's a lot of places across the country that only have like 25 beds or 10 beds, and they don't need 900, they don't need 1,000 doses to vaccinate the people currently eligible. So the so minimum. How, so, how are they handling that? Do, do either of you know what they're doing for these smaller? areas, more rural areas to distribute vaccine? Pfizer at this point? The minimum order size limits the location in which the vaccine can be used. So Pfizer was going to the big academic and research centers. And whereas the Moderna vaccine's minimum order is 100 doses, which is a much more manageable number and why I suspect that rural areas and mass distribution is going to end up leaning towards the Moderna one, even though we haven't started talking about efficacy, safety, any of those. I think just simply from a cold chain delivery and distribution, you're going to see a lot more Moderna vaccines given out than Pfizer ones. And maybe they'll be prioritized in the short term for those those areas where it wouldn't be as uh, cold chain feasible for Pfizer to deliver their vaccine. Right. Yeah. Um, Ultimately, um, Pfizer does have to probably go back and not reformulate, but there's probably a step in there that they could do in their chemistry. Um, because if Moderna can do it, you know, without having to keep the vaccine so cold, almost certainly, you know, this other uh, vehicle being a lipid particle, uh, it's very, very probable that Pfizer or BioNTech could pull it off. But the idea was that instead of trying to get the technology to that point, just in order to distribute, let's just get it to this point where we can deliver it cold and then right. get it to people who can hold it. Um, I do know that uh, centers, the large centers are going to, they're going to serve as distribution points getting the Pfizer vaccine. And they're going to try to work their logistics to bring in as many people and then get the vaccine as far out as they can in kind of a radius. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what, you know, those of us who are capable of, of doing that from a, from a large center with a lot of freezers, we're going to be able to try to do that. But yeah, I, um, you were going to mention, Josh, the safety and efficacy. Uh, is it too much to jump the gun and say that like they're fairly equivalent? Well, why don't we ask Eleanor, and then we'll go to some of the listener questions oh, I've yeah. received. So I know, Eleanor, you are following these studies very, very closely 
on the safety and efficacy data when it came out. And, you know, being a pharmacist, that's unsurprising. So why don't you tell us what what you've learned? (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you know, one one of the things I would definitely encourage listeners, if you really want to thrill, is to listen to an FDA advisory committee meeting. I've been to live committee meetings before, (laughs) but listening listening to them on Zoom... Eleanor is super sweet, but that was heavy duty sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they are uh, truly a, a truly a, a, a interesting experience, especially with you know the, all the Zoom idiosyncrasies that that you have to deal with these days. But anyway, um, I they that's where I've seen most of the information that's been disseminated so far about about the Pfizer BioNTech and Moderna vaccines. But they also have published their Initial data uh, in New England Journal of Medicine came out simultaneously with the with the EUA that was authorized for both. I would say, Santos, to your point, from what I've read, and I haven't necessarily done sort of an apples to oranges side by side, you know, ma- matching up the the graphs to each other. But based on my reading, it does look like both of these mRNA approaches are pretty similar in terms of their um, side effect profile. Certainly their efficacy is comparable. It's both what 94, 95% effective against, uh, infection. Um, the other, it, two other interesting aspects about these vaccines, and I think there's more to learn about them, of course, is the issue about whether they can prevent severe disease and asymptomatic spread. So I think some of those questions are still being answered, particularly the asymptomatic question. But for severe disease, it does look like, and I think it was the Moderna presentation last week talked about severe disease prevention. Um, and that's also very significant and, and harkens to the, the argument I get in every year with friends who don't want to take the seasonal flu vaccine, <laughs> even though people can, will say all the time, well, but it's only 40 or 50% effective. I, I'm not going to take my, I'll just <laughs> take my chances. But what, what I have to constantly reinforce to people is it's still worth getting the vaccine because if you contract the flu, the likelihood is that your clinical course will be much less severe. Um, and I think the lessons from coronavirus may be Maybe that'll finally sink in because I think the morbidity that we're seeing with this virus is much more top of mind than it is with seasonal flu. And I kind of get the sense from following this for a while that it seems that the morbidity is a little more commonplace with with coronavirus than it is with flu. I mean, I know certainly people die from the flu every year, but right. it just seems a little it seems to me um a little more prevalent than than the complications from flu. But but yeah. anyway. For, definitely from a clinician standpoint, Josh can probably vouch for this too in the hospitals that when we get, especially to older people with a lot of comorbidities, whereas the flu will knock out, you know, it, it'll have a mortality of somewhere in the like 0.1 to 0.5% yeah. overall in the population. All of a sudden with... Uh, with COVID, we got a 5% overall mortality. And then when you get to the, the hospitalized population over 65 years old and those guys, in flu, we have a decent you know, kind of path to pull those people out, but you start to get like 20 to 25% mortality in, in those older patients, um, a real skew towards the, the, uh, elderly. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, 
been really devastating. And aside from it, we're still trying to figure out if there's long-term kind of like hangover effects. Um, people complain of shortness of breath for a really long time and uh, cough that just lingers and lingers. These are things that flu has not really done. Our um, ID but, docs have taken to calling the after effects slow COVID. Right. Oh, yeah. 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 And, and we do have this in pediatrics, uh, this MIS-C, this multi-system inflammatory syndrome, which is so bizarre. <laughs> and it, it seems to really come from, you know, this, this cytokine cascade of, you know, maybe like a week or two later, you just get this wave of like um, inflammation kind of all over the body which seems to actually come from a super antigen effect of the native spike protein. Interestingly enough, which is, which is taken out of the, uh, the mRNA vaccine just because it, it wouldn't code properly. So, you know, we're, we're able to actually code the part of the spike protein, which is antigenic and take away the dangerous part of it, which is really, really cool. Oh, now that's actually an interesting point because I actually had a friend of mine email me last night asking about there are things that you're seeing on social media and just a lot of questions because there still are, you know, some unknowns about these, about these vaccines, certainly. Um, but one thing that's been floating or starting to float around is, oh, you know, one of the side effects <clears throat> with these vaccines is that because they encode for the spike protein, the spike protein is going to uh, actually cause microthrombi mm -hmm. and is going to give us uh, long-term problems. So don't take the vaccine. I have, I don't think there's any evidence that that's the case right now. No. And it, it, yeah. and to me, it just didn't make it really any, any sense at all um, in trying to draw a correlation between the spike protein and thrombosis. I'm not sure if they exactly know what the mechanism of thrombotic complications is with with COVID, but I haven't read anything clearly pointing to um, the spike protein. I think there may be some in vitro work suggesting this with a couple of studies, but I don't think that that should be a major point of concern at this point at all. I keep saying it's a vasculitis. I don't know why nobody listens to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Um, well, we're having trouble finding, you know, like yeah, a the mechanism of evidence. Out. Yeah, exactly. For intravascular inflammation <laughs> Just, I'm, I'm, I'm ahead of i'm ahead of my time been, we've been like five episodes deep in this way keep saying the same thing <laughs> there doesn't seem to be any solid data on it. oh my god you know who else had to fight through all that no, rejection no 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 no, no. don't <laughs> you dare compare yourself to a nobel prize winner <laughs> she hasn't won yet oh my god oh man um, oh, the, uh, the, the one other thing I wanted to mention, if I may, uh, um, is the issue of allergic reaction. Mm -hmm, and, yeah. you know, of course, like so many things with this virus that have been grossly misamplified in the press, um, you know, the, I think the press was like sort of, you know, eagerly awaiting for the first anaphylactic reaction from the uh, vaccine. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. And I think it's important for people to understand that, you know, look, any drug or vaccine that you in, inject or swallow has the potential to cause an allergic reaction. Mm -hmm. So 
that's not on that's not something that's necessarily unexpected, but it is rare. Now, what I also find interesting, and this is just sort of my observation, is that um, we kind of heard a couple of initial uh, cases, and I think there was a cluster of maybe these allergic reactions or either anaphylaxis or anaphylactoid types of reactions in the UK with the initial people getting vaccinated there. But, you know, I almost wonder, were they if they were all sort of in one institution, was that a, um, you know how people can get uh, sort of sympathetic symptoms or, you know, like if someone vomits, everybody else vomits, even though they're not, you know know what I'm saying? So it's sort of like, you know, someone gets hives and other people may get hives because they're, you know, nervous. I'm wondering if there was some anxiety component with being- Like an anaphylactic yawn? Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> well, but that's this is kind of fair because we know we've seen mass panic. Uh, we we have covered. I think all three of us have actually covered in this episode other types of mass. Um, it wasn't quite hysteria, but um, where we had people thinking that there was something wrong in the building, like a chemical or something like that. And so waves of people getting things like headaches and confusion and dizziness. And when people went back in to actually examine the building, nothing was there, but it was just that this feeling kind of propagated. Yeah, that was one. The other, I thought maybe, Eleanor, if it was a lot issue, if it was a particular... You know, there there was a there was a manufacturing something or other with that particular lot, and we go through so much quality control, but especially early on in you know the stages of of um, formulation and trials, there you may get occasionally like just a lot like this, which has a, a bad tendency at something in there, which which uh, sets off anaphylaxis more commonly than it normally would, right. Well, let's let's dig into our listener mailbag. So many people, more than I would have thought, are asking me, what is the risk? Can this change my DNA? This is not the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> right? I should be so lucky. I desperately want a Spidey Sensor mutant powers. But <laughs> mRNA vaccines never even touch our DNA and as a result cannot interfere with human genes. Uh, instead, they just borrow some of the cellular tools before breaking down. So the DNA never leaves the nucleus. It's the safe room of the cell. To make proteins from a genetic code, an enzyme called RNA polymerase will unzip sections of our double-stranded DNA in the nucleus and make a copy of single-stranded messenger RNA. And that's what we're doing. We've made a synthetic messenger RNA. Think of it as the sticky note you use to jot down a recipe from a friend's cookbook. The cookbook belongs in their house, but you can copy the instructions and use it to help you make dinner anywhere over the country. So it will not change your DNA. It will not affect your offspring. Ah, offspring. Um, It will not, because it's not introducing any foreign material um, as a messenger RNA, scientists have long suspected that we'd see fewer side effects. That's what's being tested now compared to other vaccines. How long does it stay active in my body? Well, Eleanor and I have been trying to figure that out for quite a while, (laughs) but... 
these kinds of vaccines, messenger RNAs, tend to break down in the body in a matter of hours. The exact number, we can't get a straight answer on. But it does break down very, very quickly. And as we mentioned, that's one of the reasons mRNA vaccines have taken decades to develop. Scientists had to figure out how to get them to stay intact long enough in cells to actually be used. <laughs> what are the side effects? You know, what are the odds of terrible side effects? What are the common side effects? So, me, the numbers guy, as you all know. <laughs> yeah, we know how much you love statistics, Josh. <laughs> so, I don't understand the reason for all this laughter. But... <laughs> oh, our thousands and thousands of listeners do. <laughs> fair. Yeah. Harsh, harsh, but fair. <laughs> So let's yeah. let's throw some numbers out at you, and we've got two folks waiting in the wings to correct me. Yeah. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Both the Moderna and the Pfizer BioNTech vaccines. No, no, I'm kidding. Sorry. <laughs> and Pfizer BioNTech vaccines require two shots: a priming dose followed by a booster shot. So here's our comparison: the interval between Moderna doses is 28 days. For the Pfizer vaccine, it's only 21 days. Each dose of Pfizer's contains 30 micrograms of vaccine. Moderna, on the other hand, went with a much larger dose, 100 micrograms per vaccine vial. It means it's using about three times as much vaccine per person as Pfizer is, but they're getting equivalent results. That's important. The dose in this case doesn't seem to make a difference between the two vaccines. And remember when I called out AstraZeneca for their sloppy science of giving a half dose the first time that ended up working better. We're seeing some of that same effect when comparing between Moderna and Pfizer. In general, people under 55 years old reported more side effects than the older volunteers. So our most at-risk groups actually aren't getting as many side effects as we were worried about. We're seeing it in the younger crowd. The side effects are, you know, most of the typical vaccine ones, and they would appear within a couple of days of receiving a dose and only last for a day or two on average. So here's the numbers, and then I'll tell you my experience. Oh, and one Eight thing, the, the side effects tend to be a little more prevalent with the second dose than they were with the first dose. Why? Because you've already been primed. So your immune system is going to respond much more rapidly and much more aggressively when it already has the blueprint for this invader. And that's why the second dose, the, the booster, is the one that we're seeing more side effects. Now, most people have really only gotten the first dose so far, uh, at least as we've started distributing in the US. Of those, 84% of both vaccine receivers have site injection reactions. What does that mean? 84% of people have a little bit of a sore arm for the rest of the day. <laughs> About 63% of people receiving the vaccine have a wave of fatigue. They're just tired and sleepy and not as crisp for the next day or two. About 55% will have a headache, only 33% have muscle pain, and only 14% have fever. 
As Eleanor mentioned, most of these effects have tended to be reported with the second dose to the point of severe reactions, neurological ones. Only four total cases out of all the U.S. vaccinations have been noted to have Bell's palsy, which is a less than 0.5% incidence rate. That means that incidence rate is consistent with spontaneous general population, meaning if you gathered all the people who have gotten the vaccine and an equal number of people who have gotten no vaccine, you could expect to see the same number of Bell's palsy cases just arise spontaneously as you saw in the vaccine group. And just a quick point about that Bell's palsy. Um, I actually did read the, you know, when the, when the FDA has their advisory committees, they the FDA has their own review of the product, and then the drug company will have their own documentation. In reading the FDA materials where they talked about Bell's palsy, it's exactly like what you said, Josh, that the uh, the incidence is comparable to the background incidence in the population. So I don't think they made any firm conclusions that, you know, oh, this is definitely vaccine-induced. I think, I can't remember if there were more cases in the vaccine-treated populate patients than in the in the placebo. I think there were, but I don't think they know what to do, to make of it. It was mentioned in the Moderna um, Advisory Committee meeting. I don't know if Moderna had any reports of Bell's palsy, but I do know that they were monitoring it. There have been no reports of Guillain-Barre, which is an ascending paralysis, also a very, very rare side effect of vaccines. And as you mentioned, there have been one or two anaphylactoid reactions. I haven't seen too many of anaphylaxis. Mm -hmm. Uh, On the safety side, while both the Pfizer, BioNTech, and the Moderna, you want to hear the the pure scientific names? Yeah. Oh, no, it's going to take too long, isn't it? It's they're just stupid. It's numbers and letters. It's Pfizer. Oh, that, no, oh sorry, they're short ones. I thought you were going to read out the whole like lipid moieties and everything. Oh, <laughs> but, I'll get to that later. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Read out the, the, so, the real, very, very creative names of these molecules. So the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine is called BNT one six two B two. No one six two B two. One six oh, like a Star Wars character. B N T one six two B two. So or yeah, it's also referred the, to as I think Tozina Tozina Maran. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was so that Josh. So B two was selected over B one because there were originally in, in like phase one trials they were they were trying out B one versus B two and B two was the winner. B two was the number one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and also there's a brand name for it too. Did you know about this? Oh, I didn't tell me. Is it as good as Bamlamivimab? Oh. <laughs> oh no. Unfortunately, no. But um, it's called Comir Comirnaty. Comirnaty. Like the Illuminati. Comirnaty. Oh, that's not good. <laughs> that was, no, that's well, that, not good. There, well, there that we definitely yeah, that definitely won't feed any conspiracy theories. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. To- toes in a miran. Yeah. Oh, C O M I R N A T Y. Comirnaty. Why? I don't know. That's a horrible name. Okay, so co is COVID. Uh, me, my. Here's probably the mRNA. Oh, no, no, no. Me RNA is the messenger RNA. Yeah. And then the t. I don't. 
I don't know. <laughs> Why do they do this? Comer naughty. Because they weren't being very co- because they weren't being very comer nice. <laughs> Comernity. Yes. Well, so yeah, both of these were generally very well tolerated by participants of phase three trials. As we said, the side effects were short lived. Interestingly, the Moderna vaccine, the one that's easier to distribute, but uses the higher dose was linked to a greater incidence of adverse events such as fatigue and muscle pain after the second shot. And the thought is that it's specifically that different dosage, the 100 micrograms that could account for the different tolerability profiles. So my experience, I got a shot in the arm oh, yesterday morning uh, in real time, about a week and a half ago by the time you hear this. And for the first couple hours, Nothing. I was walking around doing my regular rounds with no issues. However, I did notice towards the end of the day, I did get a shooting webs out of your hands. (laughs) Do you think I would be recording a podcast if I could Spider-Man around the city? Um, I'm going to weigh in and say yes, but then you would Spider-Man around the city. Oh, you know me so well. (laughs) (laughs) so i got fatigued and then i noted that i actually had sore arms and specifically sore biceps and i know this was a vaccine effect because i don't work out (laughs) and it felt like what i can only assume weightlifting after a long day of heavy weights would be because both of my arms i was walking around like a rag doll with these floppy arms because i would lift them and just have a lot of soreness in both of my muscles. And then the following morning when I woke up, slight twinges, it was gone. So that seems to be the only effect I got from the initial dose. Uh, no, in- turn into Captain America. Mm. Well, I still have the second dose. There's still hope. Right? <laughs> um, now, you mentioned the immune response. How long will this last? Well, the Pfizer vaccine, in addition to having slightly less uh, incidence of side effects may also have a very minor edge when it comes to the immune response. In phase one trials with both vaccines, humoral immunity or B cell immunity, where your, your cells remember what's attacked them before. It's also the type of immunity you get if you tickle the immune system. But strong with virus neutralizing antibody titers, generally surpassing those found in individuals who had recovered from natural infection. We've talked about that before. But as for cellular immunity, both also induced CD4-type T-cell responses skewed toward T-helper type 1 cells. I don't know if we've talked about the immune system in detail yet. We might have to devote another episode to T-cells, B-cells, and the immune system in general. For now, what's just a very, very short description of what T-cells do, Santosh? Because this is really cool. So in this particular case, a macrophage or dendritic cell is going to gobble up the little nanoparticle. It's going to see the lipid and go like that. Okay, Like Pac-Man. Yeah, just like that. It's going to transport the mRNA inside. There's going to be some pattern recognition machinery inside of the cell that says, oh, mRNA, let's make you know immunity against that. There's going to be some of the mRNA that survives and get transcribed uh, and, or sorry, fully translated. And then it gets, uh, you know, turned into this little spike protein by the ribosomes. It builds up the, the actual protein. And then 
the protein actually just doesn't pop up on side of the cell naked, okay? It's going to get wrapped up in a special package called MHC. Oh, right. major histocompatibility complex. Yeah, the major histocompatibility complex. It's going to wrap it up in this package and the antigen presentation then starts. So that cell that originally gobbled it up, it's going to butt out a little bit of its membrane and stick the spike protein out in the context or in the pouch of this MHC. Okay. Now the T cell that comes over comes over with a T-cell receptor and actually recognizes the fact that not only is this a foreign antigen, but it's being presented as a foreign antigen by an antigen-presenting cell. So this is the mechanism that helps so that like when our cells break down or anything like that, that we don't start attacking ourselves constantly. It's the fact that these foreign antigens are presented in the context of MHC. So the T-cell has a little receptor. It looks almost like an antibody, but it's a little different. Latches on and the the antigen presenting cell and the T cell have a handshake, right? And now depending on the type of T cell it is, it can either just wreck the cell, (laughs) wreck the antigen presenting cell and say, you're infected, I'm going to blow you up. (laughs) Or it might um, hook up with a B cell to teach the B cell, oh, you need to make this type of antibody. Or it might send out signals to communicate to other cells that like, hey, there's this type of infection, and I want the rest of you guys to start attacking this antigen and memorizing it. That's that's a helper type of cell. So you can have tutor cells that Mm -hmm. teach immune cells how to recognize. You can have warrior cells that work on destroying. Just yeah. (laughs) Or you can have general helper cells, which coordinate the logistics of telling people where to go. Yes. And there's little subclasses in there, but that gets really granular. Now, as reported so far, only the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine seems to bring about any sort of CD8 cytotoxic T cell response, the warrior cell. Mm-hmm. Whereas both of them will promote helper cells, the messenger, the general logistic ones, and the tutor cells. Only the Pfizer one so far seems to be promoting the direct warrior T cell response. Now, to be fair, direct comparisons are difficult as the vaccine developers use different assays for profiling immune cells. So we just Moderna simply may not be recognizing the CD8 cells because their assay isn't looking for them specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, what is the bottom line? I don't know if that, you know, in translating that to the durability of response, I don't think we really know yet. Or are there hints that because your Pfizer vaccine is generating the CD8 response, you know, is it um, is it any more durable, do we think, than the Moderna? You know, I'm not sure yet. The only reason I'm wondering is, like I said, the Pfizer is the only one generating the CD8 response, and it's also using a third of the dose compared to the Moderna with less side effects. So not that anybody is going to get to choose their vaccine, but so far Pfizer has a slight edge in very, very minor things like side effect incidents and building of immunity. How long that immunity lasts remains to be seen. For all we know, Moderna could win out, or really the human race wins out because we have two very effective vaccines and more on the way. That's right. Yeah, and I I think 
a good reminder to everybody here is that this is not the flu. This is not a virus that mutates constantly just year after year. This is very, very high potential of if we immunize enough, and then if we, (laughs) this is so hard to tell to our American audience, if we can stay away from each other. (laughs) Don't get me started. Yeah, if we can keep some social distancing and masking for enough, this pandemic can burn out. And we know that because we've proven it even before the vaccine came around in countries like New Zealand and and Australia. So this is not something that's going to propagate or just like stay latent forever. It's going to either infect or it's going to burn out. So we, we we don't need this vaccine to go on and go on and go on. We just need to like cover enough people and then maybe give ourselves some distance. <laughs> All right. So we've talked about side effects. We've talked about um, will it change your DNA? Another one, people who have allergies, food allergies, metal allergies, people who are allergic to things like eggs or nickel, they're worried, can they safely take this vaccine? Well, Unlike most conventional vaccines, messenger RNA vaccines are not grown in eggs or cells. So yes, if you have an egg allergy, you can safely take it. At their essence, these vaccines are basically chemicals catalyzed in a test tube or tank, which is another reason that it makes them easy to develop quickly and at scale. So I went in and I took the time to look at specifically what are the active ingredients before any of the, you know, autism people come at me or the conspiracy people or any of those, I took the time and I looked up what's in these ingredients. And the list is really short. The active ingredient in Pfizer is 30 micrograms of a modified messenger RNA that encodes the spike protein of COVID. It's accompanied by lipids that form an envelope so it can be delivered. And there's three different lipids in there. The only one I'm going to name is polyethylene glycol. And I'm going to come back to that in a moment. Mm -hmm. But there's also some cholesterol, phosphocholine, and diasterol, all just regular kind of cholesterols and lipids. And then there's very small amounts of salts, about 0.01 of potassium chloride, uh, less than that of potassium phosphate. 0.3 milligrams of salt, sodium chloride, and 0.07 of sodium phosphate, and a little, and six milligrams of sucrose, sugar. That's it. Some cholesterol, a little bit of salt, some sugar. You could make a great cocktail out of this if it wasn't for the fact that it was encoding a spike protein instead of a shot of liquor. And all those, and just so you know, all those the cholesterol lipid stuff. That's all the components of that nan those nanoparticles, and um, the phosphates and sugar, those are all like stabilizing agents, you know, for the vaccine um, suspension. So there's no nuts, eggs, metal, food, nothing in any of those vaccines. So people who have metal allergies, people who have food allergies, you can safely take this vaccine without having to worry about an anaphylactoid reaction. Vulnerable group, vulnerable groups, as well as people with autoimmune diseases and things like hypertension, asthma, diabetes, HIV, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, all of these groups were included in Pfizer's vaccine studies so they could see what the effects would be, as are people with more routine allergies. When it comes to safety, there is almost, almost nobody who should not be able to take this. Now, 
that almost is where we're going to circle back to. Mm-hmm. Patients or subjects who have a history of severe allergic reactions, just severe allergic reactions, not allergic to anything in particular, yeah, yeah. Right. were excluded from the clinical trials. Now, this is normal for a clinical trial. If you have somebody who's prone to start having trouble breathing the second you bring anything near them, you don't want them testing your brand new component. Mm-hmm. However, that does make it a little trickier when you're trying to mass dose a group of people when you haven't been able to test their particular subgroup. What is causing these anaphylactoid reactions? Well, the current thinking, and I'm not sure how much you know about this, Eleanor, from following those FDA studies, the thought is that polyethylene glycol, abbreviated PEG, is a polymer that a few people in the population can react to very rarely. So the PEG itself may be the allergic component that some of these people having severe reactions are reacting to. Or the other theory is that mast cell reactions or nonspecific inflammation to the vaccine in your body. So that a mast cell reaction means the vaccine particle itself reacted with the machinery that causes allergic reactions. Not the vaccine components, just the vaccine itself triggered an immune response. That's a mast cell. Or the, a component of the lipid envelope, polyethylene glycol, may be causing that. Now, PEG has caused allergic reactions, but we also use it in everyday medicine. It's a laxative. It's Miralax. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's certainly possible. I mean, another, and, and in other words, you know, a lot of times allergic reactions um, hap- are not due to the active component. In this case, like the mRNA, they're due to what we call the excipients, which are the other things that go into creating that vaccine formulation. So the nanoparticles um, primarily would be the ones that would be suspected to maybe cause an allergic reaction. Um, so I don't think we know definitively if it's PEG, but I think that's certainly a possible candidate for sure. Of the available candidates, it's one of the few that could still be realistic. Like we said, the the sugar, the sucrose is not that, is not it. The salts are unlikely to trigger. So we're really just left with components of the lipid envelope. And that's that's across the board for both the Moderna and the Pfizer. Now, just to derail very, very briefly for a moment, because I know we're running long for, this is one of the longer episodes we've had since season one. Mm-hmm. Uh On November 18th, The Lancet published a study review that describes the vaccine safety and immunogenicity for the AstraZeneca one. Now, remember, that's not a messenger RNA. That's a monkey virus. (laughs) Yes. Let's be a little more precise. It's an adenovirus, which infects chimpanzees very specifically. And that is being used as a vehicle. They're using the outer part of that to attach the COVID spike protein so the spike protein can be presented that way. So for those of our listeners who are going to be able to get the AstraZeneca virus around the world, that the Chadox appears to be better tolerated in older adults than in younger adults. It does show similar effectiveness across all age groups after a booster dose. Now, the only... The slight edge that AstraZeneca may have over messenger RNA-based products is we know the tolerability. We know the side effect profile, the long-acting lack, the long 
acting immunogenicity of many adenovirus-based vaccines. So there's a possibility it may offer slightly longer lasting protection against SARS-CoV-2 than the messenger RNAs. We simply don't know, but AstraZeneca is going to be on target to have 300 million doses available by July 2021, which I think is the biggest in terms of mass production compared to the slightly slower production of the messenger RNAs although they can be scaled up rapidly. And for those of you who are deeply religious, and another thing I've seen floating oh, around, yeah. yes, <laughs> is there is a rumor that some of the COVID vaccines have been used making aborted stem cell fetuses. That is simply patently not true. Yeah. However, stem cell lines have been used to develop vaccines in the past. And to the point... Uh, Pope Francis did come out and say that it is morally acceptable and forgivable for Catholics to take a virus, even if it has been used, even if it has been developed along the way with partial unethical components. He said for, you know, the Christian values of charity towards the community, it is all right. So you have the okay from the Pope himself to get vaccinated. And simply because he also notes, nobody can choose what kind of vaccine they get. So you may not have the option of choosing one of the ones that was not developed using stem cell lines, but even the ones that were, were not developed using aborted fetuses. You know, there's an interesting little, little postscript to that. And, um, cause I, I, I've been asked this question as well. And interestingly, um, this whole issue about, oh my gosh, aborted fetuses and using stem cells and not to denigrate anyone's religious beliefs. But the real story behind that is that the this tissue, well, it's not even tissue, it's really cells that are still used today, were came from two aborted fetuses that were voluntary abortions that due to um, concern about rubella exposure in the mother. Mm-hmm. So, and at the time that these occurred, that was acceptable. That if you were, that if a woman felt that they were exposed to rubella or had rubella, that they, you know, made that decision for themselves about, um, you know, terminating the pregnancy. That was really some of the, the history around, around this that's been, I think, somewhat forgotten. Um, so just to, to add that little bit of added perspective out of, you know, historical interest. So I hope that we've managed to address a lot of the misinformation or concerns about this new vaccine out there. And I do encourage everybody who is able to take it when you're able to take it to go ahead and get it. You know, I put myself on the front line to treat patients with it. And I was certainly put myself on the front line and was first there to try out the vaccine. Now, for those of you who are in groups who still have a while to wait, there may be ongoing vaccine trials in your area. And you can certainly look into those. To, uh, you know, you, cert- you run the risk of getting being in the placebo group, but there's nothing that says you cannot get those vaccines. And then later, when the more traditional ones become available to you, take that. I would encourage you, however, if you have already received a single dose of either the Moderna or the Pfizer, do not switch horses mid-race 
stick with whichever vaccine you got, complete it, and then we can start talking as the future goes on about what are the effects of getting, say, doses of Pfizer followed a couple months later by Moderna or those. I'm sure we're going to see folks doing all sorts of things, (laughs) and I can only encourage responsible behavior at this point. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I wanted to bring up one thing to kind of get this out of the way, because this actually appeared in Lancet, and it kind of pissed everybody off. There's two separate HIV worries that were one of them was a a false positive uh, HIV test. This was actually only in a single vaccine in uh, University of Queensland came out with a vaccine in Australia. Well, CSL bearing was partnering with University of Queensland. That's exactly right. And I'll, I'll explain that one in a second. And then there was a correspondence in the Lancet. This was not a study. This was an opinion paper where they said, specifically the recombinant adenovirus type 5 vaccines, so the ad5 vaccines, which were in phase one. And I, I believe that might be Johnson & Johnson's that's using ad5. Yeah. Um, right. So they they had some theoretical risk because the vaccine had a construction which had the HIV HIV one envelope along with the adenovirus cast uh, the outer portion of it the the box basically and they said oh you know does does this actually because we're using this envelope can we enhance HIV replication if you happen to get the shot and HIV at the same time like acute infection and you kind of put those two kind of together and they said several follow-up studies said it could have the potential mechanism for increased susceptibility and this kind of thing but really they're talking about kind of a nightmare scenario in which case you know this you have this kind of vaccine and you get acutely infected with HIV HIV1 at the same time and honestly this was it was poorly written and it shouldn't have been sent out the way it was and it was fear-mongering yeah. um yeah, so there is, I, I've got to admit, there's this weird theoretical risk. Um, but I think this particular, um, this opinion paper out from October in the Lancet was really awful. We have found no increased HIV amongst 48,000 plus, you know, uh, trial enrollees in, into the uh, BioNTech Pfizer vaccine, nor in the Moderna vaccine. So that we're shelving it. Okay. The second one, and Eleanor, it sounds like you you know about the one from Australia. Um, do, do you, you uh, did you want to talk about it? Like why they had to scrap that particular vaccine and what the HIV worry was there? Yeah. Um. To to my knowledge, I mean, just from what I've read, I mean, in the in the, in the lay press, the there apparently was a component of their vaccine that could cross-react with the assay for HIV. Right. So this was generating false positives in individuals. It was not causing HIV. No. <laughs> um, but due to the, I think, optics and people probably, you know, panicking over over that, thinking that they have HIV when that was not the case, they decided to just take discontinue the further development of the vaccine. So that was a decision that CSL Bering and Queensland University, University of Queensland decided, I think within the last week or so. Um, mm -hmm. 
And and uh, just for you nerds out there, if you really want to know exactly what was going on, uh, actually, Eleanor, you might love this. They developed a proprietary uh, uh, technology called a molecular clamp. (laughs) What that does is a lot like how the MHC protein presents the spike protein in a very particular way and an orientation so you generate the right type of T-cell receptor and antibody. This was the same kind of clamp so that instead of the spike protein floating around and showing up in different orientations in 3D space, it was held in a very particular orientation to be presented then to like an antibody-producing cell or a T-cell receptor. So that molecular clamp, interestingly, uses a stretch of an HIV protein. Um, and it, it works really, really well. But the problem was it generated antibodies against uh, HIV-1 or HIV-2. I'm not exactly sure what. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when we screen for HIV, we actually use a screening test which generates a little bit extra false positives. We do that sacrifice because then we don't miss anything. We don't, we have almost non existent false negatives. So that's why we use that where we tilt the, the statistics a little bit in the favor of, you know, being taking a few false positives so that we don't tell anybody falsely that they don't have HIV. But what you always do after that is you do something, you reflex to a different type of HIV test to confirm the results. Now, you can imagine, though, but if you generate all this like HIV-positive antibodies, once they have that HIV antibody, they have that for a really long time. <laughs> so you might have people walking around going like, oh, I'm not really HIV-positive, but I test for it. And then you like mass vaccinate a <laughs> population. And all of a sudden, you have made a beautiful, cheap HIV screening test for an entire island nation completely defunct. So you you can't do it. (laughs) (laughs) So Australia is going to actually go ahead and go back to their uh, UK roots, and uh, they've they've initiated an arm of the uh, AstraZeneca trial. Maybe they can give that a go. <laughs> yeah. And on that cheery thought, as <laughs> promised, I said I would attempt to do a parody while recording an episode, a challenge that nobody asked for and very few will appreciate. <laughs> okay. Before everybody forgets everything that we've talked about, real quick, recap. Not going to change your DNA, mild to moderate side effects. Uh, See if you can take a day off because you might feel a little fluish. No, it doesn't cause any HIV. Josh, you're on. (laughs) Masks the latest fashion, like a spreading disease. The folks are coughing on their way to the clinic, getting COVID with the greatest of ease. The virus takes its own locale. And if you're not social distance, then it's all over, pal. If one guy's antigen and the other don't mix, they're gonna bash it up, bash it up, bash it up, bash it up. Hey! And you're talking back to me. Get the shot. Gotta keep them vaccinated. Hey! Man, you disrespected me. 
Get your shot. We got to keep them vaccinated. Hey, hey, they don't pay no mind. If you're under 16, you won't be getting it anytime. Hey, <laughs> stay home and play. <laughs> Yay. Okay. If uh, if Pfizer doesn't buy that for like a million dollars and just sets you up for life, I'm going to be shocked. <laughs> I feel like you say that, but you don't mean it. Uh, oh, no, no. I'm calling them right now. Well, so that's it for this week. Hopefully you learned something. Please promote this episode, if not the entire show, to all your friends, family, enemies, strangers on the street, anyone who has questions about the pandemic. We love to teach. As always, we love to hear your comments, feedback, and questions. This show was produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and pharmacist Eleanor, as well as other members of the crew. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that will be in the show notes, along with links to some of the sources used in researching this episode. Ooh, I, I want to make sure that everybody who listens to this also hops over to uh, Eleanor's Space Medicine. Um, Space 3D. Space 3D. Space 3D. Yeah, please go listen to Space 3D with Dr. Eleanor Rangers and crew. Yeah, we just we just uh, had our first two episodes and talking a little bit about all the uh, space programs on TV, so you can get some spoilers over there. And we just spoke to a guy that uh, is an amateur astronomer, so that episode will be coming up pretty soon. Woo! So if you'd like to look outward rather than in and explore the grand reaches of space rather than all the terrible things going wrong with our bodies, head on over to Space 3D and hear Eleanor at her finest. Until next time. As always, wash your hands, wear a mask, stay safe, and once you get your vaccine and hopefully things get a little bit more normal, happy travels. Bye, everybody. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.